Hi everybody, it's been a while, hasn't it? Sorry. Hey, so I'm in my office now. I moved. And this is basically going to be what I'm able to do, is recording a little bit here and there, half an hour here and there, when I get the opportunity so people can still hear some stuff from me that's good for the very Lutheran project. Um, sorry about that. That's just the way things are, and it's going to be like this from here on out. Maybe I'll get myself a new microphone for the office while all my uh, Godcast recording stuff is, you know, over at my house. But today, I want to bring something up that frustrates me to no end. It's the Church Fathers. I love the Church Fathers to death. Don't get me wrong. I have the complete collection of the Ante Nicene, Nicene, and Post Nicene Fathers here. I have all these books, and I love referring to them and using them as a pastoral resource. Patristics are fun. Patristics are awesome. But I have a hard time with people that want to claim that these guys have the same authority as Holy Scripture. You know, usually, what you'll hear is a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox believer saying that, well, you know, in toto, when you, when you look at the collective of the church fathers and the magisterium, all of the theologians throughout church history, that ends up being, in a way, infallible. But that's, that's the problem. <laughs> Not only is it, um, it's one thing to say, they're good. As a pastor, you know, if I'm writing up a sermon and I want to double check my exegesis on a passage by reading up on what did Chrysostom say about this or what did the uh, what did Tertullian say about that, that's a good resource so that I'm not by myself coming up with ideas on my own for interpretation. But I have to do it with more than one church father because oftentimes they disagree with each other. And I have a hard time believing that, well, it, yeah, they disagreed with each other, but the church currently has the right answers as to which parts of the church fathers and which ones based on which situation or which doctrine are correct. Uh, a good example of this, a timeless example, is uh, St. Augustine being... Well, a monergist, a hardcore monergist. In his Donatist writings, he is very, very much willing to say that not only are you saved by God's grace alone and your free will has nothing to do with it, he basically calls all men slaves. While Chrysostom writes an entire treatise on the uh, human soul being something where, uh, what was it, a man cannot be injured that does not injure himself. In other words, there's this degree of human autonomy in Chrysostom's more synergistic way of looking at salvation and election that make it irreconcilable with Augustine's hard monergism, where God alone saves you. You play no part in it. And, uh, you know, when it comes to justification, too, Augustine believes in justification by faith alone. Chrysostom says, well, justification is by faith alone at first for your initial justification, but to remain justified, you must do works in addition to having faith. The church fathers are all over the place. They're not a monolith. 
They do agree on a whole lot. But if they were truly infallible, maybe I would expect a lot more unity among them. To say nothing about guys like Origen. I still find it confusing that we we have the writings of Origen in the Church Fathers collections when in the latter half of his life the guy went absolutely nuts. And the Church Council later on condemned him as a false teacher. They anathematized him. But that said, that's not what's bugging me. Because I like the Church Fathers and I like that they have a lot of different stuff to say. It's a good thing that I can go out there and get different opinions on stuff and then read the Word of God and decide, okay, what does the Word of God say and what do these guys say about the Word of God? Let me get a bit deeper into it. Maybe I missed something. And maybe, um, maybe Athanasius here, maybe he's catching something that St. Basil doesn't see. Maybe Gregory the Great see something that Chrysostom missed, or vice versa. It's great to have that diversity of opinions that are all educated. What's bugging me about them, though, is that these are some wordy guys. I honestly have a hard time seeing uh, simplicity in what they're saying. Sometimes it's a little bit more simple, but let's just take a look at the Enchiridion of St. Augustine here, a treatise on faith, hope, and love. This guy named Laurentius asks Augustine to furnish him with a handbook of Christian doctrine. What do you Christians believe? You would expect St. Augustine to do something similar to Luther's small catechism. Baby's first Christian doctrine. This is the basics of what we believe. Well, let's go ahead and read some of the Enchiridion to see how Augustine actually writes. <clears throat> Chapter 1. The author desires the gift of true wisdom for Laurentius. I cannot express, my beloved son Laurentius, the delight with which I witness your progress in knowledge and the earnest desire I have that you should be a wise man, uh, not one of those whom it is said, where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? But one of those of whom it is said, the multitude of the wise is the welfare of the world. And such as the apostles wishes to become whom he tells, I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Now just as no one can exist of himself, so no one can be wise of himself, but only the enlightening influence of him of whom it is written, all wisdom cometh from the Lord. Chapter 2. The fear of God is man's true wisdom. The true wisdom of man is piety. You find this in the book of holy Job, for we read there what wisdom itself has said to man. Behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. If you ask further what is meant in that place by pietas, the Greek calls it more definitely theosavea, that is, the worship of God. The Greeks sometimes call uh, piety uh, eusebia, which signifies right worship, Though this, of course, refers specially to the worship of God. But when we are defining in what man's true wisdom consists, the most convenient word to use is that which is distinctly expresses the fear of God. And can you, who are anxious that I should treat of great matters in few words, wish for a briefer form of expression? 
or perhaps you are anxious that this expression should itself be briefly explained and that I should unfold in a short discourse the proper mode of worshiping God. Okay. Already, if you were to take a five-year-old child who wanted, uh, they want to learn what it means to be a Christian. They heard that Jesus loves them. This child wants to know what does that mean? What does it mean to love Jesus back? And how do I worship God? Augustine has already flown way over their heads. But this is the closest thing I could find to baby's first Christianity in the church fathers. Now, were the church fathers ignorant that there are people who aren't smart in their, uh, in their congregations here? Augustine was a bishop. You should know there's kids there. <laughs> there are teenagers there who can't tell head from tails, who might be illiterate, who aren't the brightest guys in the world. But I don't know. Maybe everybody was just a genius back then. But let's, I mean, just let's take a look here at chapter 8 of the Enchiridion here, this handbook here. Uh, chapter 8, the distinction between faith and hope and the mutual dependence of faith, hope, and love. Again, can anything be hoped for which is not an object of faith? It is true that a thing which is not an object of hope may be believed. What true Christian, for example, does not believe in the punishments of the wicked? And yet such an one does not hope for it. And the man who believes that punishment to be hanging over himself and who shrinks in horror from the prospect is more properly said to fear than to hope. In these two states of mind, the poet carefully distinguishes when he says, permit the fearful to have hope. He quotes from uh, Lucan. Another poet who is usually much superior to this one makes a wrong use of the word when he says, if I have been able to hope for so great a grief as this. And some grammarians take this case as an example of impropriety of speech, saying he said sperare to hope instead of temere to fear. Accordingly, faith uh, may have for its object evil as well as good, for both good and evil are believed. And the faith that believes them is not evil but good. Faith, moreover, is concerned with the past, the present, and the future, all three. We believe, for example, that Christ died, an event in the past. We believe that he is sitting at the right hand of God, a state of things which is present. We believe that he will come to judge the quick and the dead, an event of the future. Again, Faith applies both to one's own circumstances and those of others. Every one, for example, believes that his own existence had a beginning and was not eternal, and he believes the same both of other men and other things. Many of our beliefs in regard to religious matters, again, have reference to not merely to other men, but to angels also. But hope has for its object only what is good, only what is future, and only what affects the man who entertains the hope. For these reasons, then, faith must be distinguished from hope, not merely as a matter of verbal propriety, uh, but because they are essentially different. The fact that we do not see either what we believe or what we hope for is all that is common to faith and hope. In the epistle to the Hebrews, for example, faith is defined, and eminent defenders of the Catholic faith have used the definition as a standard, the evidence of things not seen. Although, should anyone say that he believes that is, has grounded his faith, not on words, nor on witnesses, nor on any reasoning whatsoever, but on the direct evidence of his own senses, he would not be guilty of such an impropriety of speech as to be justly liable to the criticism, quote, you saw, therefore you did not believe. And hence, 
It does not follow that an object of faith is not an object of sight. But it is better that we should use the word faith, as the scriptures have taught us, applying it to those things which are not seen. Concerning hope, again, the apostle says, Hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we have seen not, then do we with patience wait for it. When, then, we believe that good is about to come, this is nothing else but to hope for it. Now what shall I say of love? Without it, faith profits nothing. And in its absence, hope cannot exist. The Apostle James says the devils also believe and tremble. That is, they have ne having neither hope nor love, but believing uh, that what we love and hope for is it about to come, are in terror. And so the Apostle Paul approves and commends the faith that worketh by love. And this certainly cannot exist without hope. Wherefore, there is no love without hope, no hope without love, and neither love without, or love, nor hope without faith. My goodness, that's chapter 8. And then it's chapter 9, and chapter 13, and chapter 18, and chapter 23. I, I mean, he has a chapter, chapter 23 is just called Summary of the Results of the Preceding Discussion. For somebody that wants to learn, what do Christians believe? As it is right, we should know the causes of good and evil, so much of them that at least as will suffice for the way that leads us to the kingdom, where there will be life without the shadow of death, truth without any alloy of error, and happiness unbroken by any sorrow. I have discussed these objects with the brevity with which my limited space demanded. Brevity, Augustine, sure! And I think there cannot now be any doubt that the only cause of any good that we enjoy is the goodness of God, and that the only cause of evil is the falling away from the unchangeable good of a being made good but unchangeable, first in the case of an angel, and afterwards in the case of man. Sorry, changeable angel. This is, a, this is deep. This is not baby's first Christianity. That's, and that's my problem here. Now, the Enchiridion is a good resource. Uh, Laurentius here was probably an adult. We can be charitable. We can be charitable and say, well, Laurentius was a smart guy, and he maybe in his letter to Augustine had a bajillion questions that Augustine felt needed time to answer. But an Enchiridion is a handbook. An Enchiridion is, here's what it means to be a Christian, and Augustine takes forever to even touch on the basics. He mentions the gospel in passing. But maybe you think I'm being uncharitable. Again, Laurentius is an adult. Laurentius is a Roman who probably knew his poetry. He knew his philosophy. And he's at, Augustine knows the guy. Okay, let's go to St. John Chrysostom then. In his instructions to catechumens. Now, St. John Chrysostom his name means golden-tongued, but I would like to re rename this man to St. John the Wordy-tongued, because he is wordy. His instructions to catechumens. Now, what is a catechumen? A catechumen is somebody who is learning the faith. They are being catechized, discipled, made ready to be a Christian, to be baptized. Quite often, it is before they are baptized, right? Well, let's just go ahead and read some of how St. John Chrysostom, writing to catechumens, many of them are probably children or preteens. Let's hear what he has to say. First instruction. To those about to be illuminated, 
and for what reason the labor is said to be of regeneration and not of remission of sins, and that it is a dangerous thing not only to forswear oneself, but also to take an oath, even though we swear truly. 1. How delightful and lovable is our band of young brethren! For brethren, I call you even now before you have been brought forth, and before your birth. I welcome this relationship with you, for I know, I know clearly, to how great an honor you are about to be led, and to how great a dignity. And those who are about to receive dignity are all wont to honor, even before the dignity is conferred, laying up for themselves beforehand by their attention goodwill for the future. And this also I myself now do. For ye are not about to be led to an empty dignity, but to an actual kingdom. And not simply to a kingdom, but to the kingdom of the heavens itself. Wherefore, I beseech and entreat you that you remember me when you come into that kingdom. And as Joseph said to the chief butler, remember me when it shall be well with thee. This also I say now to you, do ye remember me when it is well with you? I do not ask this in return for interpreting your dreams as he. For I have not come to interpret dreams for you, but to discourse of matters celestial, and to convey to you glad tidings of such good things as eye hath not seen, and ear hath not heard, and which have entered not into the heart of man. Such are the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. <sighs> this is an introduction. Hey kids, remember... Joseph, maybe you haven't read Genesis yet, but you should remember this verse, what he said to the butler after he was in prison. Okay, but this is an introduction thing. Maybe it's a pep talk. Let's, uh, let's go into his next instruction here. Second instruction, after eight or nine pages of Chrysostom going on and on and on about the details here. Second instruction, to those about to be illuminated and concerning women who adorn themselves with plating of hair and gold and concerning those who have used omens and amulets and incantations, all of which are foreign to Christianity. I have come to ask, first of all, for some fruit in return for the words lately said out of brotherly love to you. For we do not speak in order that ye should hear simply, but in order that ye should remember what has been said, and may afford us evidence of this by your works. Yea, rather not us, but God, who knows the secrets of the heart. On this account, indeed, instruction is so called, in order that even when we are absent, our discourse, our discourse may instruct your hearts. And be not surprised if, after an interval of ten days only, we have come asking for fruit from the seed sown. For in one day it is possible at once to let the seed fall and to accomplish the harvest. For strengthened not by our own power alone, but by the influence which comes from God, we are summoned to the conflict. Let as many, therefore, as have received what has been spoken and have fulfilled it by their works, remain reaching forth to the things which are before. But let as many as have not yet arrived at this good achievement, arrive at it straight away, that they may dispel the con uh, condemnation which arises out of their sloth by their diligence for the future. For it is possible, it is indeed possible, him who has been very slothful by using diligence for the future to recover the whole loss of the time that has passed. Wherefore he says, Today if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. In this he says, exhorting and counseling us, that we should never despair, but so long as we are here, should have the good hopes, and lay hold on what is before us. 
and hasten toward the prize of our high calling of God. This then let us do, and let us inquire into the names of this great gift. For as ignorance of the greatness of this dignity makes those who are honored with it more slothful, so when it is known it renders them thankful and makes them more earnest. And anyhow, it would be disgraceful and ridiculous that they who enjoy such glory and honors from God should not even know what the names of it are intended to show forth. A lot of reading. In fact, if we skip over to the second section here, the second instruction, it's more of the same. Let us not therefore remain craving after the things of this life, neither after the luxury of the table or costliness of raiment. For thou hast the most excellent of raiment, thou hast a spiritual table, thou hast the glory from on high, and Christ is become to thee all things, thy table, thy raiment, thy home, thy head, thy stem. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. See how he has become raiment for thee. Dost thou wish to learn how he becomes a table for thee? He who eateth me, says he, as I live because of the Father, he also shall live because of me. And that he becometh a home for thee, he that eateth my flesh abideth in me, and I in him. And that he is a stem, he says again, I am the vine, ye are the branches. And that he is brother and friend and bridegroom. <clears throat> I no longer call you servants, for ye are my friends. And Paul again, I espoused you to one husband, that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And again, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we become not as brethren only, but also as children. He took two and a half sections to get to this point. That hey, what you are looking forward to is Christ being your all in all. What you are looking forward to is our Lord Jesus being with you, supplying all of your needs, so you do not have to, and you should not, be all about the world and the world's pleasures. But this is like the second thing he's teaching these catechumens. There's nothing that I'm seeing here that says, hey, memorize the Apostles' Creed. This is the basics of the gospel. Here's what God does for you to show you that he is present, that he has given his son to die for you, and his son rose from the grave, God in the flesh, to guarantee you eternal life. Now let's talk about baptism. You are united to him in your baptism, where God gives you the promise that you are now a saint of the living God. There's none of that with Christostom. What he says might be good. It might be motivational. It might be a great resource for, for a theologian or a pastor who wants to go in deep, but this is supposed to be for catechumens? Now, maybe there's a cultural thing. Maybe it's a cultural thing that I don't understand, that back in the day, everybody wanted wordy. They wanted a whole lot of words, 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 words poured into their brain. You know, they didn't have MP3 players. They didn't have songs buzzing in their head. It was easier for them to focus. That could very well be the case. And Chrysostom is a great resource. Great commentaries on the scriptures. I was just consulting his commentaries on the general epistles to help me with the sermon. <laughs> like, oh man, I did all my work here. All right, let me double check with Chrysostom. But my goodness, this is not easily accessible to anybody unless they've already been a Christian for a long time. That's not how you treat the beginners. Now, Everybody is wordy. I can pick a, a book here at random here. Let's go to Jerome. And you're going to see the same thing almost universally from the church fathers. So here is Jerome 
just from one of his letters here. Here is his letter to Eustochium, one of the longest of his letters, consoling Eustochium for the loss of her mother, who had recently died. <clears throat> if all the members of my body were to be converted into tongues, and if each of my limbs were to be gifted with a human voice, I could still do no justice to the virtues of the holy and venerable Paula. Noble in family, she was nobler still in holiness. Rich formerly in this world's good, she is now more distinguished by the poverty that she has embraced for Christ. Of the stock of the Gracchi, and descended from the Scipios, the heir and representative of that Paulus whose name she bore, the true and legitimate daughter of that Marcia Papiria, who was mother to Africanus. She yet preferred Bethlehem to Rome, and left her palace, glittering with gold, to dwell in a mud cabin. We do not grieve that we have lost this perfect woman. Rather, we thank God that we have had her, nay, that we have, had, that we have her still. For all live unto God, and they who return unto the Lord are still to be reckoned members of his family. We have lost her, it is true, but the heavenly mansions have gained her. For as long as she was in the body, she was absent from the Lord. It would constantly complain with tears, Woe is me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul has been this long time a pilgrim. It was no wonder that she sobbed out that even she was in darkness, for this is the meaning of the word Kedar, seeing that according to the apostle the world lieth in the evil one, and that as its darkness is, so is its light, and that as the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, she would frequently exclaim, I am a stranger with thee, and a sojourner as all my fathers were, and again I desire to depart and be with Christ. As often, too, as she was troubled with bodily weakness brought on by incredible abstinence and by redoubled fastings, she would be heard to say, I kept keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others I myself should be a castaway. And it is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine. And I humbled my soul with fasting, and thou wilt make all in my bed in my sickness. And thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. And when the pain which she bore with such wonderful patience started through her, as if she saw the heavens open, she would say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Now that sounds like a great eulogy for the woman. This poor deceased woman writing to comfort her daughter. Three, four, five, six, seven, <clears throat> eight, nine, ten, eleven. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. That's 19 more pages in this letter. This isn't a eulogy. This is a letter that would take you three or four hours to read that St. Jerome here wrote to this poor daughter. Excruciatingly wordy full of references to scripture. And don't get me wrong, all credit to Jerome. He's reaching out in compassion to somebody, and he took this much time to answer a single letter of, hey, my mom died. Okay, that's good. That's excellent. You're doing the work of a pastor, dear Jerome, and you are doing well. But my goodness, could you give her a hug? And Chrysostom, 
could you could you give people the very 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 baby's first Christianity basics? They're so wordy. So I love the church fathers, but I have a hard time with how people accept them or read them obsessively as though they are the end-all be-all authority on all things Christian, when oftentimes if you want to just find out what a church father believed, you have to spend hours looking through details because of their extremely long, wordy, run-on letters and books. My goodness, could you get to the point? Yes, Luther wrote thousands and thousands of pages of stuff, but at least it's conversational writing, and he gets to the point really quickly. Then he does his exegesis. Then he talks about it. Then he brings in the details. And Luther is hard to read sometimes, too. Bondage of the will is a serious slog. But, in all of these things, thank God that theologians that came after the Church Fathers era we're just a little bit more concise. We're just a little bit willing to get more into the basics for people. And they understood that not everybody is as smart as you. Just saying. Love them to death. They shouldn't be the very end-all-be-all resource. Amen and amen.